Turn your Bible to James, the fourth chapter, please. James chapter 4. May we bow together in prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee that love has lifted us out of the sewerage of sin, planted our feet on the solid rock, which is Christ. We pray that today somebody who has never had that cure, never had the real remedy for sin, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, may that one have in his heart created a hunger and a desire as the Holy Spirit does His work of conviction. May there come a quiet and a holy hush across this auditorium. Bless those who listen by radio. Touch those who are sick and invalids and in mourning and in sorrow, especially those who have trouble and do not know which way to turn. Perhaps somebody even now nearing the brink of utter despair considering, contemplating suicide, Lord, touch that one. And through this hour today, may we realize the lifting power of the love of Christ. And may there be someone receive Jesus, saved from the devil's power and grip today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In James, the fourth chapter, From where come wars and fightings among you? Come they not here even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers, and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You ought to underscore that verse in your Bible. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Come now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. 
whereas ye know not what shall be on the next day. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing as evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I want to speak this morning on the subject, the friend of the world or friend of God. You cannot be both. Now, there's a difference in being a friend to and being a friend of. I think we can be a friend to the world, but not a friend of the world. For a real friend fulfills a specific mission. A real friend loves. A real friend does not hedge from his own convictions. And a real friend will be able in great love to delicately, graciously, gently, tenderly tell another person about his faults. And a real friend will not allow someone else to deter him from that which is right. Now, the Scripture says, Know you not that whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Being a friend to the world means that we go out in the world. We find men and women and boys and girls who are all taken up in sin. And as a friend to them, we tell them about the real remedy for their problems. We tell them about their, the, the real cure for their cancerous sin. But if we were a friend of theirs, they would be able to get us to go along with them into their sin. Now, there's a difference and a fine line, and sometimes we don't see it. We sometimes think, think we ought to be a friend to everybody and a friend of everybody. Not so. A man is known by his friends. If you've got a bunch of thugs and they call you their friend, there's some problem. Now, you may be a friend to the thug, trying to get that thug out of his thuggery. But if he says, well, he's a jolly good fellow, and boy, he's my friend, and he just does any old way, then, you know, then somehow you've gotten down off of the pedestal of convictions, and you've lowered yourself to be with them. Now, this is what the Scripture, this chapter is about. Whether you want to be a friend of God or a friend of the world. Well, the book of James is an unusual book. We've been dwelling in this chap these books, these chapters for several Sunday mornings now. Remember that James called himself the servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though he was the half-brother, humanly speaking, of the Lord, he did not dwell on that. He didn't say, well, look, I'm buddy-buddy with Jesus. I grew up with him. I knew his mother, Mary, and 
and our his foster father was my real father Joseph and we grew up and I remember oh I remember all the things he did as a child and, and boy I'm really you know get, getting on intimate terms with him James never did that now he might have before the resurrection because he didn't believe in Jesus at that time you remember when this book was written Jesus had been crucified 22 years and so in that sense James was only 22 years old as a Christian fairly new Christian when you compare it with the disciples he did not believe on the Lord when they were growing up together and at the crucifixion James was not a Christian he was not a follower of Jesus and the Bible specifically says in 1st Corinthians 15 that after now young people in the back I absolutely not Lori I'm not gonna put up with that and you sit there and don't talk okay not one minute am I going to put up with it. I don't know whether anybody else is going to it or not. Thank you for moving, adults. I appreciate that. Sometimes it's not the guys that cause the problem. It's the girls. Sometimes not the girls. It's the guys. Now, we're not going to have that. Now, if you feel like I'm mean, you pray for me. I love you, but we're not going to have that. Amen? All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> God bless you. I love you. All right. Now, James did not dwell on trying to be uh, on intimate terms with Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 15 specifically says that after the resurrection, the Lord appeared to James. And that's when James understood. And he received Christ. And Christ became real in his life. Now, I want you to notice that in these chapters... James has a doctrine that at times seems to be at variance with the doctrine the Holy Spirit gave us through the Apostle Paul. Paul looked at salvation from God's perspective. He said in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Anybody here this morning, anybody, man, woman, boy, or girl, teen, whoever you are, when you realize there's sin in your life and you know you have a need and you're willing to apply, apply by faith the blood of Jesus Christ on the doorposts of your heart and by faith to claim Christ as your Savior, then without one single work added, Christ saves you. For by grace are you saved through faith. Nothing added, nothing subtracted. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. You don't have to join a church to be saved. Why, friend, you don't even have to quit all your sins to be saved. All the fitness God requires is that you feel your need of Him and you come to Him with your sins and your sorrows and your hurt. You come. That's as God looks at it. But now listen. After you come. After you come. As Brother Oates pointed out the other day at the, mission, at the tabernacle service, we are saved to serve others. We're saved to tell others about Jesus Christ. After we get saved, if the main reason we're saved is so we'll go to heaven, then God really ought to give every preacher a hatchet or an axe. And the moment a man walks down the aisle trusting Christ as his Savior, and we deal with him, we're sure he's saved, then get an axe and chop his head off, send him on to heaven. And say, that's not the reason we're saved. Now, it's a byproduct of being saved. Thank God for that. After you're saved, you're not going to hell. But after you're saved, God wants you to serve Him. 
He has lifted you out of the sewerage of sin and placed your feet on the solid rock of Christ so you can be his servant. They sang this morning, love lifted me. Well, how did love lift you? Love, the love of Christ at the cross, God's love poured out at Calvary, lifted us from the sewerage and the slump of our sin, from the slough of despond, and planted our feet on a road that leads toward heaven. And after we get on that road leading toward heaven, then Christ says, all right, until I take you on home, I have an assignment for you. I want you to serve me. Lost friend, that's the reason you never can quite understand a saved person. You wonder, well, why doesn't he do the things he used to do? You know, we used to really enjoy doing all this stuff together, and now that guy's gotten saved, and he's different. He doesn't do what he used to do because he has a new purpose in life. That purpose is no longer to serve himself. It's to serve Christ. Now, after we're saved, the world looks, and they say, you know I believe a Christian ought to be this kind of person, this kind of person. Sometimes I'll go out and talk to unsaved people. This last week, I had a privilege of going, and well, Terry and I went together one night, and others, uh, other times during this week, we've gone out. And, and uh, uh, sometimes I'll say to a man, what do you think a person needs to do to be a Christian? You'd be surprised, all the things. Now, I'm talking about a lost person, all the things he says. I've had people say, well, a Christian, I guess you ought to go to church. Yes, a Christian ought to go to church. See, the unsaved world thinks a Christian ought to go to church. Christian, if you don't go to church, you're disappointing the unsaved world because they say that a saved person ought to go to church. Well, I guess he ought to not, do his, ought not cuss and swear. I've had people say that to me. You see, the unsaved world says a Christian ought not to do those things. He ought, to, he ought not to cuss and swear. I've heard some lost people say, well, a Christian ought not to drink. That's what they think. And that's right. The unsaved world looking on says, well, if he's a Christian and he drinks, he must not be a Christian. See, that's the way their thinking is. What does a person have to do to be a Christian? Well, I guess he doesn't drink and he doesn't cuss and he goes to church and uh, he tries to keep the Ten Commandments. I believe he ought to keep the commandments. Had people say that. That's what the unsaved world says. Now, that's the exact perspective from which James writes. James gets over here and says, uh-huh. Let's get over here in the unsaved. Now, now, already Paul's told you how God says about salvation, but let's look at from the unsaved world. The unsaved world says, you better hold your tongue. Don't gossip and don't meringue people. You better not have respect of persons. When a person comes into that church who is wealthy and a person comes in who is poor and you honor the wealthy person and you mistreat the poor person, that's not Christian. That's what the lost world says and that's what James says. James is writing from the perspective of what the world says. That whole book is written from that perspective. And I want you to notice in chapter 1, he speaks of the trials and the temptations and the test of the validity of our faith and the true worship. He says true worship is this, to visit the fatherless, to have compassion, and then to have holiness. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. And then in chapter 2, he speaks of respect of persons and the peril of snobbery in the church. 
and the riches of poverty and the poverty of riches and the royal law. And he speaks about the relationship between faith and works. And he says, if you're saved, if you say that you have faith and you have no works, you have a dead faith. Because living faith, vital faith, the faith of Christ produces good works. In the third chapter, he dwells the whole chapter on the tongue. And I don't think many of us would have to ask James why he does that. James, why did you talk so much about the tongue? We don't have to do that because we all know. Everybody here. Is there anybody here that's never had tongue trouble? We all have had it, see? It's our tongue that so many times causes us problems. James put it this way. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and curses. Then when we come to chapter 4, he speaks of the Christian and the world. And I think there are three words that sum up what he's saying in in this chapter. Confusion, competency, and cure. Confusion competency and cure. First of all, he speaks of the confusion that's going on in the world. He says, from where come wars and fightings among you? Come they not even of your own hearts that war in your members? The lusts that go on inside of you. The origin of confusion? Look inside. Deep down inside. Every one of us has lusts. Now, this is related to what John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The lusts that go on. Where do wars come from? Lust. Where do fights come from? Lust. Where does greed come from? Lust. We lust for everything. We lust. Now, I'm not just talking about sexual lust, but we lust after position in life. When somebody comes up and offends you, you lust to be well-respected. And so immediately you begin defending yourself either by words or by actions. Somebody comes up and calls you a name. You're not going to call me a name. Bang, bang. See? Why? Because of the lust in your heart to be respected. You want everybody to really respect you. Somebody offends you, so you get your feelings hurt. And you defend yourself because you feel that they ought to really respect you and not hurt your feelings. Now, this is just, this is just real life. I'm not going to ask us to vote on it. I'm not going to say how many of you are honest enough to confess it, because it's true. The Scripture says it. It's true in all of our lives. Where do these fightings and wars come from? They come from lust in our own lives. The lust that John spoke of when he said the love of the world not to love the world because all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of flesh and the pride of life, it's not of the Father but is of the world. Tommy and Mike, you're having a tough time back there. I want you to be quiet, all right? Well, I hate to do that.
sometimes, sometimes we have a lust to just uh, be a jolly good fellow with the world. You know, we don't want to be, we don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. That's one reason we don't carry our Bibles in school. We're scared somebody will see us. Do you know that one of the great Christian movements in America today among young people is a movement that leads kids, teenagers, to carry their Bible to school with them? I talked to the kids in our, in our Anchor Christian School and, uh, about carrying their Bible. Some of them are careless about it. They don't carry their Bible. Now, in our school, Sometimes it's not as necessary, perhaps, because there are not lost people, a lot of lost people around. However, it's a tremendous witness when you carry your Bible, and I urge you to do it. In the public high school, you carry your Bible, and somebody's going to get nosy and ask you why you got your Bible, and what a wonderful opportunity to tell them. But I want to tell you, when you tell them, it's going to be tough. I heard about a fellow that was carrying his Bible around high school. Everywhere he went, he carried it. And a bunch of guys got together and called him a sissy. He was an athlete. And he uh, carried his Bible to English and math. And he carried it down to the gym, put it there when he went to play. And everywhere he went, he carried his Bible. And some of the guys got around and just taunted him and taunted him and said, you're a big old sissy. You have to carry your Bible everywhere. One day, he just had enough of it. He handed him the Bible and said, you carry it a while. (laughs) Boy, they weren't about to carry it. Who was the real sissy? The guys that wouldn't carry it, see? That guy that was carrying it had the guts. He had the fortitude. He had the courage. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is writing through James to say, don't lust to be a jolly good fellow with the world. Because if you want to be a friend of the world, you're not going to be God's friend. The confusion comes from within us. Sometimes we blame everything on the devil. Now, the devil has due his dues. And I'll tell you, I'll be so glad when he gets chained and he can't get out to taunt us and haunt us and work on us and all that. But a lot of times we blame on the devil the things that are really going on inside of us. It's our own selfish desires to accomplish certain things. And James puts the problem right down inside our heart. He says, the problem is in you. It's inside of you. Unhappiness, confusion, problems, hurt feelings, getting mad with each other, not speaking to each other. Where do these wars come from? They come from inside of you. Listen, beloved, when somebody has hurt your feelings, how many of you have ever had your feelings hurt? Lift your hands. How many never had your feelings hurt? Lift your hands. Okay, we're all human then. I don't think we've got any angels here today. All right. Do you know when you got your feelings hurt? I've heard some people say, well, boy, that guy hurt my feelings. I'm not going to bother him. I'm not going to even be around. I'm not even going to speak to him. And so they go down the life of, road of life, and they don't speak, and they don't have anything to do with people that used to be their friends, and they just go on and on and on. You know what Jesus said? He said, if you go to the altar and you remember there that somebody has something against you or you have something against them, leave your gift and you go make it right with that person. Don't bear all these things in your heart. 
Don't have all these things going on inside of you that lust and war and cause you to be out of fellowship with somebody else. Instead, have an open heart that loves. The heart of confusion, the cause of confusion, it's inside of us. And I, in my opinion, James is writing to Christians. He's not writing to the lost. He's writing to you. He's writing to me. He's saying, the problem is inside of us. What are we going to do about it? Well, the competency begins in verse 6 as James begins to discuss what we're to do about it. Look in verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth more grace, giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, be uh, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Now, what is real, where does real competency come from? Real confidence. You know, one of the reasons we're, uh, we have hurt feelings all the time, one reason we have war all the time, we have inferiority complexes, inferior feelings. And we have to blow ourselves up and we have to get somebody else to blow us up so that we won't feel little under somebody else's thumb. And so we're filled with these inferior feelings And so we have to strut like a peacock to prove ourselves. What does James tell us to do? Under the impression of the Holy Spirit, James says, if you really want competency, if you really want to be somebody, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Where did he get that? He got it from Jesus. That's what Jesus said. You remember the night before the crucifixion, the disciples were all there and Jesus took a loin and girded himself, and a loincloth and girded himself. And he got down and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And he came to Peter and they didn't understand what was going on. And, and Peter said, not so, Lord, you, you can't wash my feet. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. You have no part in me. And then Peter said, but Lord, don't wash just my feet. Wash me all over. Jesus said, you don't need to be washed all over. You've already been washed, but you need a cleansing. By that, Jesus was teaching two terrific truths. First of all, he was teaching that the master is the servant. That the person who really is going to accomplish great things in this world for God is going to have to be a servant. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't think that everybody has to respect you. Now, I believe that fathers ought to teach their children to say yes, sir, and no, sir. Mothers ought to teach their children to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And I think parents ought to teach their children to respect them, not just to respect them as individuals, but to respect authority for all of life. And if this is missing, there's a terrible missing, there's a terrible minus in that person's life all of his life and so parents you have a tremendous responsibility at this point but there's a difference in that and being so proud and so strutting around like a peacock all the time that you think everybody else has to bow and scrape to you brother we don't need that 
We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And if we don't humble ourselves, God has a terrible way of humbling us. Listen, don't ever pray, Lord, humble me. <laughs> I've heard people pray that, and they were sincere, and God understood what they meant. And so God, just in his long-suffering peace and wonderful gentleness, uh, dealt with them gently. But don't pray that. Rather, God tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. If you wait for God to humble you, he has... Just say, Jesus, I am nothing, you're everything. And yet I recognize that when Jesus Christ came into my heart, my real confidence was in thee, so that today I don't have to be afraid of anything. Now listen, when I say I'm not afraid of anything, I don't mean that I could beat up everybody in town or every bully in town. When I say I'm not afraid of dogs, I don't mean that I could go tear a dog limb from limb. I couldn't do that. There are lots of things I can't do. But I want to tell you, God put in my heart a fearlessness. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid of animals or dogs or anything else because I don't believe a Christian has to be afraid. There's a confidence in his heart, not in himself, not in his flesh, not in his handsomeness, not in his gifts and talents, but a confidence in the Christ that dwells in our hearts so that our real confidence is in him. And the real confidence to be competent is outside of yourself. It is in Christ and when Christ comes to dwell inside of you, then our competency is in him. That's the reason Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's the reason Paul could say, follow me. I'll lead you to God. He wasn't saying, follow me, boy, I'm really something, really something, like Cassius Clay does, you know. He didn't do anything like that. Paul said, follow me, I'll lead you to God because Christ dwells in me. And beloved, when we do that, when we live lives like that, the whole world will be pointed to Jesus and our lives will be transformed into the glorious image of Christ day by day by day. The last word that sums up this whole passage is the word cure. How are we going to be cured of being a friend of the world to being a friend of God. The key is in beginning of verse 13. Come now, ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the next day. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing as evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. What is the cure? Lord, what is your will? I realize that my life as to duration is so very brief, just a heartbeat less and then a funeral, just a breath less and then a grave digged. I have no permanent tenure on this house in which I live. I do not know how long I'll be here. And I'm not going to dare to say I can do anything and people can follow me to anything, but I'm going to say my life is just a little vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it will be gone. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And when Christ invades the inner being of my life, Christ in me becomes the hope of glory. 
and the cure for selfishness, the cure for joylessness, the cure for depression, the cure for sin, the cure for disease, the cure for iniquity, Christ inside of you with the attitude, my life, just a vapor, just here for a little while, and if all I've got is just this little old life, then I'm not going to accomplish much. But boy, if I let Jesus Christ come and live inside of me, he'll change me and he'll make me what, he ought, what I ought to be. That's what God wants. And that's what Christ wants inside of us. And this will give you friendship to God. And then you will be in a position to be a real friend to the world. If a friend sees you going down a road and the bridge is out down there and he's your close friend, he just said, stands there and says, well, that's his business. I guess that's what he's going to do. Is he your friend? No, a real friend would go out there and do everything he could. He'd do everything he could. If necessary, if he had a gun, he'd shoot your tires out. He'd do anything to get your attention to stop lest you go down that road where the bridge is out. That's what you and I need to do as a friend to the world. But let's not become cronies with the world. Let's not get on such terms that we do the things they do. And the world looks on us and they can't tell the difference between us and them. That's what James is saying. Our faith is demonstrated by our life. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, thank you so much for this time together. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit now to make application to individual lives concerning this scripture. May somebody who is here, tired of sin, tired of an old life, really want Christ and come to Jesus to have the blood applied. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? God's invitation is very simple this morning. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come to thee. And you know, Jesus loves you. He wants to save you. And he will if you'll let him. But you see, Jesus never knocks anybody down and drags them out. He gently whispers to our heart. He puts us in a place where God can deal with us. He gently knocks. May I come into your heart. May I come in. Sometimes I've gone to people in Bowling Green and knocked on their door. And they've let me come in. I've told them about Jesus, but they won't let Jesus in. And sometimes I've said to them, you know, you've treated me a lot better than you've treated Jesus today. You let me come into your heart and your home, but you wouldn't let Jesus come in. He's knocked at your heart's door. I want to ask you today to treat Jesus like you would treat the greatest guest that ever came to your home and knocked. Open your door. Let him come in. Just say, come in, Lord. And then when you've let him come in, 
He says to you, there are no secret disciples. Everybody's an open disciple. And so you need to confess him. There are people here in this room who have already been saved. You've received Jesus. You need to confess him. You need to walk down this aisle and come and say, I, I've trusted Jesus, or I want to trust Christ as my Savior. We'll pray together. Show you something from the Word of God concerning assurance. And then we like to say to the church, here's Joel, here's Mary. They've trusted Christ, and they're one of us now. You need to come. God help you to do it right now. And wherever you are today, whatever your condition, whatever your plight, open your heart to Jesus. Now, will you do it? If your membership is in some other church and God wants you here, you come. If you've made a commitment to Christ personally in your heart but never made it public, you ought to come while we wait, while we pray, while we sing. Will you step out for Christ right now?